All right, Ezekiel 39 is our text. If you want to open your Bible there, probably already have it there. You're probably thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to do all of chapter 39 at once. We were like two years in chapter 38, it seems like. And uh, what's that all about? Well, let's read verse 1. First of all, it says, You, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That sound familiar to you? Well, it should because it reads just like chapter 38, verse 3. The wording is exactly the same. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a name you should remember. He writes extensively on the place of Israel in evangelical thought and theology. He's a good guy. There's an interpretive principle he calls the law of recurrence, and he says it occurs in chapter 39. He describes it as follows. Let me read you this quote. This law of recurrence describes the fact that in some passages of Scripture, there exists the recording of an event followed by a second recording of the same event giving more or different details from the first. Hence, it often involves two blocks of Scripture. The first block presents a description of an event as it transpires in chronological sequence. This is followed by a second block of Scripture dealing with the same event and the same period of time but giving further details as to what transpires in the course of the event. So the law of recurrence. The book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is like that. If you remember our studies uh, in that book or if you're familiar with the book, you know that you can follow the chronology of the book, uh, especially the portion during the Great Tribulation, which is chapters 6 through 19. You can follow the chronology by following the opening of the seven seals, one after the other. And you can put together a chronological order. But as those seals are opened, then the writer, John the Apostle, will uh, often pause and give you several chapters of detail about what is happening when those seals are opened. And then he'll pick it up chronologically again. And so it's the law of recurrence. So Ezekiel 39 Uh, goes deeper into certain details of chapter 38. And since we spent so much time in chapter 38 talking about things, uh, we can take chapter 39 a little bit quicker. And so verse 2, I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Once again, I'd remind you of our finding that the magnetic north pole is shifting rapidly toward Russia The invaders come from the far north, and that is clearly Russia, even without the pole shift. But I find it amazing anyway that God says they're coming from the uttermost parts of the north, due north, and the north pole is actually shifting in that direction uh, to literally fulfill this prophecy. Verse 3, Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. Now, this could be figurative language using bow and arrows to stand for whatever weapons the invaders possess. Or, as we have suggested, the unusual times in which the invasion occurs may call for just such weaponry to be employed as this army comes on horseback. And so we've taken the approach that the description of this army and its weapons, when it says they're on horseback with bows and arrows and javelins and things like that, we we believe that literally Uh, It it kind of stretches our imagination right now uh, because we can't really see that happening. Uh, But we did give you some information as to 
you know, individuals that still have mounted armies. Uh, and we remind you that this is probably going to happen sometime during the Great Tribulation when a lot of things have changed in terms of weaponry and warfare and all of that. And so we're taking it quite literally. Either way, it's clear that it is God who personally intervenes. This is not a victory for the Israeli forces or for any other human defender of Israel. God himself intervenes and fights for the nation of Israel. This entire battle, uh, well, it's not really much of a battle, it's just God wiping out the invaders. It's all about the glory of God. And so I can't see any human fingerprint on it whatsoever. Uh, we often read into this text our own ideas of what might occur. I remember when I first got saved, and I probably believed it for a while as well, there was a lot of talk about uh, popping and beeping. No, uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, nuclear war. And uh, you remember when we were talking about the Valley of the Dry Bones and, these, and all, and, and fire coming from the sky and all that, and Bible commentators say, well, the, obviously what's being described is a nuclear exchange, and, and we would talk about that. Uh, but if you just read the words themselves, it's clear that God is doing this, uh, and He's doing it apart from any human intervention. Uh, it's because defeating Gog is God's way of being magnified and getting the glory. And so, verse 4, you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and all the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Again, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, he has an interesting comment about the mountains of Israel. I quote, they extend the length of the center of the country, beginning at the southern point of the valley of Jezreel at the town of Janine in Galilee and continuing south until they peter out at a point north of Beersheba in the Negev. These mountains contain the famous biblical cities of Dothan, Shechem, Samaria, Shiloh, Bethel, Ai, Ramah, Bethlehem, Hebron, Debir, and most importantly, Jerusalem, which seems to be the goal of this invading army. Here's another example, Fruchtenbaum says, where the Six-Day War has set the stage for the fulfillment of prophecy. Up to the Six-Day War in 1967, all of the mountains of Israel, except for a small corridor of West Jerusalem, were entirely in the hands of the Jordanian Arabs. Only since 1967 have the mountains of Israel been in Israel, thus setting the stage for the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, the phrase in verse 4 we read, I will give you, literally translated would read, I have given you. Now, that doesn't mean it has already happened. It's in a tense that scholars call the prophetic perfect. Even though it is future, since it's the Lord making the statement, then it is certain to take place. And so God can talk about events future to us as already having happened because He knows that He will bring them to pass. Verse 5 again, You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. The invaders never get very close to Jerusalem. They're going to be slaughtered when they're still some distance away. Verse 6, And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This seems to be fire from heaven, a la fire and brimstone. Not only are the invaders uh, destroyed, 
but God attacks their homeland with fire from heaven as well. I should mention again that there are those who see this as some sort of a nuclear exchange, but the text clearly says that it is God who brings this fire. God does not need a nuclear bomb or help from human technology or armies to defeat Gog and his forces. Uh, In fact, any such help would nullify uh, what God is trying to accomplish through this, and that is to bring attention and glory to himself. And so verse 7, So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And so we see here that God makes his name holy. He sets himself apart through these events. All the nations will know that the God of Israel is God. Now, it doesn't mean that all the nations are saved. Only those, uh, it only means that they have irrefutable evidence to the fact that God exists, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. To me, one of the most mind-blowing episodes in all of Scripture comes at the very, towards the very end of the book of the Revelation, when after Jesus Christ has been on the earth for 1,000 years in, in his risen, glorified body, and the believers of the church age, you and I and all of them from Pentecost until the rapture, will be on the earth in glorified human bodies. Still, there will be a rebellion against the rule of Christ by those who are born in the great uh, or in the millennial kingdom. And so uh, they'll be able to see Christ, interface with Christ. They'll see the result of a relationship with Christ, that is our glorification, and they will still reject salvation in Jesus Christ and be led into a rebellion. And so uh, it'll be clear that they know that Jesus Christ is God uh, and what's going down, but they will still refuse to believe. And so it's, uh, uh, you know, fascinating Uh, You know, just because God says I will reveal myself as God doesn't mean that all of these people uh, will believe in him. The nations will not all be saved. Now, notice God also says, I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. That tells me that up until that point in history, God is allowing himself to be profaned by mankind. One way God is allowing his name to be profaned has been the scattering and persecution of his elect nation. I mean, just on the surface, if you tell a a non-believer that the Jews are the apple of God's eye and they are at all familiar with the history of Israel from the 6th century until the 20th century, they're going to think that God is either unloving or that he's not all-powerful. Either way, they're going to profane the name and the nature and the character of God. And so you don't know very much about the Bible, you know a little bit about history, Uh, you know enough to know that the Jews have been despised and and scattered and you know about the Holocaust and some things like that. And then a guy comes along and says, these people, these are God's elect people, they are the apple of his eye. And you think, man, with friends like that, who needs enemies? You know, so, and and even some, uh, it was... um, Uh, I I mention this every now and then. There was a rabbi who about 25 years ago struggled with this issue uh, and he wrote a book uh, and he came to the conclusion that the God of Israel, the God that he believed in, uh, was either unloving or not omnipotent. He couldn't, uh, couldn't handle the fact that God would be unloving towards Israel. 
And so he concluded that God was not omnipotent, that he would love to save Israel and help Israel, but he just wasn't able to pull it off. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it's an interesting dilemma that people get in if they don't read the Bible and understand what's going on. God is allowing his name to be profaned because he has to discipline his people Israel. Uh, and in order to do it, because they're a nation, uh, it, it has taken these centuries uh, to bring them to the point they're at now, and he's still not through with it. Uh, it's a long, slow, historic process, and God says, I love you enough to let people profane my name while I deal with you the way that you need to be dealt with. And so it's very interesting. Um, another way God's name is profaned uh, is by scoffers in modern times who say, where is the promise of his coming? They claim that everything is continuing just as before and that God is not really at work in human history. Some go so far as to say that he may have at one time been at work in human history, but not any longer. Uh, and so people look around and they say, well, you know, God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Again, uh, you know, if there's a God, why is there this suffering and this disaster and this tragedy and all that? So, you know, maybe God got this all started, but we're on our own now. Uh, uh, and so a God allows his name to be profane because Peter answers that question in his second epistle. He says, God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish. And so God says, I'll be profaned for a time while I suffer long with the human race because I don't really want people to perish. And so if it means that uh, some people are going to profane me and defile me and, and uh, misunderstand me so that I can save this person and that person and that person over there, then so be it. Uh, but Peter goes on to point out that one day God's long-suffering is going to be through and He will judge the world by fire. Now, God has told us exactly what He's doing uh, it's not really hard to understand what God's doing. The Apostle Paul tells us at the end of the book of Acts that because the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus Christ, the gospel is going to go out into the world to the Gentiles and they will hear it and multiplied millions of Gentiles and Jews will come to know Christ during the church age. And so Israel was set aside, but only temporarily and partially. And in their setting aside, the gospel was turned to the Gentiles. After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, after the church is complete, God will go back and redeem Israel. Zechariah tells us exactly how. He says in his writings, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as an only son. And so when Jesus comes in his second coming, all Israel, all the surviving Jews on planet earth at that time will look upon him they will recognize that he is the one who was pierced in the crucifixion for Israel's sins and they will receive him as their savior. And so when God defeats Gog, all the nations will know he is God. It will be a major end times event. And by the way, this is another reason why I think that the invasion by these opponents of Israel must occur before the end of the great tribulation and not in or at uh, certainly not at the end of the millennial kingdom. When Jesus Christ returns to earth in his second coming and establishes the kingdom, it will be pretty clear to the nations that he is God. They still do not all receive him, but they will know who he is. And so in verse 8, 
Surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord. This is the day of which I have spoken. God is really, really emphasizing this prophecy. Chapter 39 is already a restating of chapter 38. And as if the repetition isn't enough, God says, I am really going to do this. This is really going to happen. And so that's why uh, students of... I mean, it's obviously very significant for other reasons. This is why students of prophecy are always talking about Ezekiel 38 and 39. uh, Because God says... Uh, he gives us great detail about what is going to happen. He repeats it, and then he says, really, really, this is going to happen. And when it happens, uh, the nations will know that I am God. Verse 9, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. Now, some see the seven years as a clue that this invasion must take place prior to the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Let me just read their argument to you to be fair. Uh, they say something like this. If this battle takes place after the rapture, but before the Great Tribulation begins, there's ample time and freedom of movement, even through the first half of the Tribulation, to accomplish this job. Moreover, the statement about not needing to gather firewood from the forest would make more sense uh, than after the first trumpet judgment when one-third of the trees are burned up. If this battle were to take place at any point in the tribulation, the people would run out of time to complete this task before the intensified persecution of the final three and a half years that drives the Jewish remnant into the wilderness to escape the onslaught of the Antichrist. While there is no reason why the burning of weapons for firewood could not continue into the millennial kingdom, since during this time other weapons will be converted to peaceful and productive uses, the renewal of nature and increased productivity of this age could argue against this necessity. Uh, So that's the argument that uh, if you just take this burning, this seven years of burning, uh, it seems to coincide nicely with the seven years of the Great Tribulation, and so that would put this battle... Uh, after the rapture but before the tribulation actually begins. But notice, even those who hold this position are willing to concede there's no reason why the burning could not continue into the millennial kingdom. I feel that the most important clue as to the timing of this event, as we saw in chapter 38, is that Israel will be dwelling in peace when this invasion occurs. It seems to me the most likely time for that is during the first part of the Great Tribulation as the Antichrist guarantees the peace of Israel. I mean, you know, obviously we could be wrong and and we're not going to, you know, this isn't a doctrinal point, it's just a guess, but one of the major events of the end times uh, is the entering into a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. In fact, it marks the beginning of the seven-year Great Tribulation. When this man, this world leader, makes peace, and by makes peace I mean guarantees the safety of Israel and they are allowed to rebuild their temple, that is when the time clock begins. Uh, And so, uh, to me, uh, you know, that is the moment uh, that Israel is finally at peace. Not without enemies, but at peace and dwelling safely. Uh, And so that, to me, is a more important detail. Um... As far as burning these weapons into the second half of the Great Tribulation, just because Jews will flee from Jerusalem 
Uh, it doesn't mean that there will be nobody in Jerusalem or Israel to continue the burning. In fact, in the book of Daniel, it seems that the Antichrist is starting to come into the Middle East uh, as this invasion begins to uh, help Israel. God wipes out the invaders and then the Antichrist continues and it is that point that he declares himself God in the temple uh, and certainly he sets up headquarters there. And so there will still be people there and there will still be a need to burn these weapons into the second half of the tribulation. And I don't see a problem if the burning continues into the millennial kingdom. It's not the creation of a new earth but the restoration of an earth that's been ravaged by the judgments of the great tribulation. And it seems to me that the restoration of the millennial earth will be somewhat gradual. I mean, you're not going to just wake up one day and the earth is going to be paradise. Uh, there are some things that will occur as the earth is naturally restored under the rule of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I'm sticking to my guns thinking that this happens uh, after the peace treaty uh, somewhere towards the middle of the Great Tribulation. Verse 39, verse 11, or chapter 39, verse 11, it will come to pass on that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because they will bury Gog and his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Hammon Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. Now, I'm thinking this burial of the bodies occurs as soon as the slaughter is over and then continues for seven months. The slaughter ends during a time when travelers are still needing to use roads. This would be true if the invasion occurs either before the Great Tribulation or in its opening years. I don't see it being true so much during the last part of the Great Tribulation after the Antichrist has started his persecution of Israel. There won't be any travel They'll just be escape. Jews will be fleeing for their lives, not worrying about cleansing their land or keeping the roads clear for travelers. And so verse 14, they will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hemangog. The name of the city will also be Hemonah, and they shall cleanse the land. After the initial cleanup, squads of men will be employed to search the land for additional remains. As they go through the land and one of them sees a human bone, he'll set up a marker beside it. Then as grave diggers see the markers, they will take the remains to the valley of Hemangog for burial. The operation is going to be so vast that a town will be set up in the valley of the grave sites to accommodate these uh, procedures. Now, why all this talk about bodies and the cleansing and all? Well, if you were a Jew hearing this for the first time and it was in the context of God working to restore both the land of Israel and Israelites, you'd have questions about how the land could be cleansed because dead bodies and blood on that scale ceremonially will defile the land. You'd think of this through the law with its vast requirements for cleansing things that came into contact with death and blood. Uh, I don't want to be grotesque here, but um, sometimes uh, in my work as a chaplain and some of you guys and gals that are involved in emergency services, I mean, uh, you know, occasionally there, there's a death and uh, there uh, is um, biological material that is left behind uh, that needs to be cleaned. 
uh, and it's, it's kind of gross, and there's companies actually that you can hire that come out and do this now. And, uh, but for the most part, it's gross to us, but we clean it and we go on with our lives. See, and that's why we miss this, because if you're a Jew, it's also a ceremonial problem. It's also a ritual problem. You can't worship. It, 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 this has to be cleansed. It has to be dealt with in a certain way. Uh, and, and so it's, it's very interesting. Sometimes God goes into details, and we need to think like uh, a Jewish person would think. Otherwise, we make up our own interpretation of these things. But this would be perfectly normal. If I'm a Jew listening to this, somehow this is encouraging to me. Ezekiel's telling me on the night I'm going to get the news that Jerusalem is falling to Babylon and, and Ezekiel is encouraging me that God is going to restore the Jews in the latter days and I'm going to hear this and think, how are we going to cleanse the land? Uh, and it may seem a petty point to us, but it's a very important point to a Jew. Verse 17, And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and every beast of the field, Assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat the flesh and drink the blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. That part of the verse is a figurative language, rams being the leaders, lambs being the uh, soldiers. Verse 19, you shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, with all the men of war, says the Lord God. So this expands on verse 4. It pictures an inglorious end to the invaders. As gross as it will be, it will be evident that something supernatural is taking place. God is bringing these birds and these beasts to do His bidding, it will be understood as a divine intervention in nature. Uh, and so the, the whole scene really uh, is to the glory of God in the sense of magnifying God and His presence in the battle. Verse 21, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies and they all fell by the sword. Again, remember that Ezekiel is addressing Jews in exile in Babylon in the 6th century just as Jerusalem is falling. From that time continuing even now is the times of the Gentiles God has been using Gentile world powers to discipline His people. When the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 break out, Jew and Gentile are given notice that God is going to absolutely fulfill His unconditional promises to Israel. Even today, right, Israel's back in the land, May 14, 1948, they become a nation again, and they're in the land, but... For the most part, Jews are in the land and returning to the land in unbelief. They're not coming as Christians. They're not coming as Jews who have accepted the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ. They're there in unbelief. And though, uh, you know, there might be some people still in the world who look at Israel and say, oh, they're God's chosen people, you know, some Gentile nations. For the most part, everybody hates Israel. Uh, and so God says, here's what's going to go down. There's going to be this massive invasion 
And before anybody can act or react or do anything, I am going to destroy that army with fire from heaven and pestilence. They're going to kill each other. And then I'm going to send beasts and birds to feast on them. And all of a sudden, Jew and Gentile alike will think, wow, there is a God, the God of the Bible. And it'll, it'll, it'll be a pretty big advertisement for God. You know, better than the Geico ads. I mean, it's it just wow. It'll be a wow factor like you can't imagine. Verse 24, according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. That's an accurate assessment. Is it not of God's dealing with Israel the past several centuries? Verse 25, therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness, which they were unfaithful to me, and when they dwelt safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid. Now, God is describing a time in which He regathers Jews to their land, and they dwelt safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid. Again, I see this as future to us in the Great Tribulation's very beginning, when their safety is guaranteed by a peace treaty. And God's saying, when, when that happens, that's the time when I'm going to do these things and magnify myself. Verse 27, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. The hallowing is referring to God's destruction of Gog. The Jews themselves will realize that their centuries of suffering were a deserved Discipline. I mean, if you're Israel, I'm just speculating, but you're Israel, you're in this kind of peace agreement with the Antichrist who's ruling over uh, a, you know, a vast portion of the world, ten uh, sections of the world, and you're in relative safety, but you're still not safety. And you're, you've reestablished sacrifice and offering, but you're still not really you know, uh, born again. And then all of a sudden, this giant invasion comes down against you, uh, and you're familiar with this because you've read Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then God intervenes miraculously. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like a, a light goes off and says, all of these things are true. Everything that the Lord has said is true and righteous altogether. Uh, and it will reveal the Lord to them. Verse 29, I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. The ultimate end of these events is the total salvation of Israel. All the Jews who survived the Great Tribulation will believe, they will be born again, they will receive the Holy Spirit. God's historical work in disciplining them and regathering them and restoring them will result ultimately in them being regenerated. And so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not God's ultimate plan just to have Israel as a nation again. And he's not even really excited about the, or the tribulation temple. His plan is to reveal himself to them as their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and see them regenerated. And so that's it. That's the famous passage, Ezekiel 38 and 39. At some point in the future, God is going to draw a coalition of nations led by Russia to attack Israel when she is dwelling in peace. I've suggested a certain timing, but we're not certain exactly when this event will occur. It kind of depends on where you put the emphasis, I might say. 
Get it? Emphasis, emphasis. Some people emphasize the trees, some the burning of the implements, some here, some there. I emphasize this peace agreement. I see it with the Antichrist. But, uh, you know, all we know is that this will happen in the future. It's interesting, fascinating to see nations aligning against Israel just as predicted in this passage. Uh, and, And some of that just happening, as I keep telling you, this year as Turkey one of the major players in this invasion is now no longer an ally of Israel but is uh, estranged from Israel and is allying themselves with Russia and this other coalition of nations. And it's amazing and mind-blowing to read about things like the magnetic pole shifting more towards Russia, making the predictions of Ezekiel that the invasion comes from the north uh, as literal as they can possibly be. God is on the move. Amen?